3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Inez. Is your mic sneaking away from you? It is here. I'm ready to talk into it. Oh, my God. Incredible. <laughs> well, uh, and good morning, Leela. Good morning. Oh, I'm a bit out of breath after that. <laughs> <laughs> little dash to the, to the next room to make sure that we have our little mic socks. That's right. Let's talk about COVID safety for a second. Uh, we got to make sure we're still testing. We're still masking. We are still uh, washing our hands, uh, being very conscious of each other's safety. We were talking before the show started about, um, yeah, just how difficult it is to navigate um, being in the world when the responsibility has been pushed back by government onto the individual and how um, challenging it really is in practice to engage in acts of community care, but how important that is as well. Mm, Yeah, I guess just do what you can, you know. I think it always kind of feels like we're not doing enough and we don't have government support and support higher up, but just do what you can. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Shall we get into what we have on for today? Absolutely. Let's do it. Uh, So first, we have a very exciting replay from Jamad Hersey from the Women of Colour Network at the Women's Rights at Work Conference, which is at the end of 2022, where they spoke about the formation of their network and the need to address workplace discrimination in the Victorian public sector workplaces. And you can catch more industrial, social and workplace topics from 3CR's Stick Together on Wednesday, 8.30 to 9. Awesome. And after that, we are going to be joined again by Jathan Sadowski, Senior Research Fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, to talk about generative AI platforms, including the much-hyped DAL-E and ChatGPT, to unpack what they do, how they work, and to contextualize their development within the political economy of the modern tech industry. And then we will be hearing from another Monash person or researcher, I should say, (laughs) Um, Dr. Jane Burke, who is an associate professor in pharmacology. Uh, She leads the Respiratory Pharmacology Group and has a longstanding interest in the regulation of smooth muscle function in the lung and cardiovascular system. She has been leading a research program on silicosis at Monash Biomedicine Discovery Institute since the first cases in Stonemaces masons working with engineered stone were reported in Australia. Today, Jane joins us to discuss rising concerns about silicosis in Australia and the precautions we should be taking to protect ourselves at an individual and regulatory scale. Awesome. I really like that both the Monash folks that we have coming on are talking both about uh, social issues, but the labor rights concerns of those issues as well. Um, And finally, we're joined by James Clark, who's the executive director of Digital Rights Watch. And James is going to speak with us about the use in Australia of what he's uh, 
what he's described as, quote, landlord tech, such as Snug, which has attracted scrutiny after revelations about its pretty dubious method of scoring uh, of rental applications in a Guardian exclusive late last year. And most recently, it has been engaged by Homes Victoria to develop a bespoke platform to allocate affordable housing in the state via a random ballot. And this has obviously raised additional concerns about the nature and use of this technology and now a new government partnership, you know, officially with the platform. So, a lot on today. Very excited to get into it. Uh, maybe we'll head into a CSA before we come back to you with the headlines. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio license in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station, and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 23rd of February. The UN torture prevention body has this week cancelled an inspection to Australia, citing lack of assurance that they won't again be blocked by accessing detention facilities. This move means Australia is one of two countries in the world to have had visits cancelled by the UN body, who have ended a similar visit last year when they were denied access to facilities by the New South Wales and Queensland governments. In a statement, Australia's Human Rights Commissioner conceded that Australia has failed to deliver on treaty promises designed to protect the rights, health and safety of people in detention. In other news this week, a landmark federal court case challenging age pension discrimination for First Nations people began this week, seeking recognition that the current system does not account for gaps in life expectancy. The legal challenge by 65-year-old Waka Waka man Uncle Dennis seeks fair and equal access through a lowering of the pension age by three years for First Nations people. The court heard that data indicates a 65-year-old First Nations man would live for a further 15.8 years on average, compared to 19 years on average for non-Indigenous man. The case cites social, economic and health inequalities experienced by First Nations people that occur as a direct result of racist colonial policies and contribute to the current gap in life expectancy. Also in headlines, Palestinian advocates are concerned about what they say is a biased and flawed process by SBS management to suspend journalist Essam Al-Ghalib. Mr Al-Ghalib is under investigation for a tweet he posted 10 years ago prior to his employment at SBS. A spokesperson for the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network said, quote, At a time when Israeli forces and settlers have killed more Palestinians in the West Bank in one month than any other time in the past few decades, worrying about a journalist's tweet from 10 years ago is a callous distraction, end quote. SBS has also been criticised recently for emails revealing that their news director agreed with the Executive Council of Australian Jewry to participate in an Israeli state-sponsored press junket. And finally in headlines this week, with a note for First Nations listeners that this headline contains details that may be distressing. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service has spoken out this week, saying they were never consulted over new laws introduced to state parliament 
concerning the overrepresentation of First Nations children in state care. Half of all kids in out-of-home care are from First Nations families. And last year, a landmark inquiry into the state's youth justice system found 70% of First Nations children reported being racially abused and physically and sexually assaulted by the police. The new laws are designed to make authorities consider past trauma inflicted on First Nations people in protections cases. But uh, Vals, who represents family and children in out-of-home care and has long raised concerns about the system, says it was not allowed to give feedback on the draft laws and does not think many of the new provisions will have a substantiative impact. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 23rd of February. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us... Every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the trash. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On community radio 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to head into a track now. This one is Eventually by Maisha. I'm zipping on this bourbon. Sitting by the staircase Thinking about the good days Before I knew your name Got this cloud on me Can't seem to brush it off Can't seem to let it go I'm waiting patiently For you to let me know How you really feel When I wake up I'll still 
Forget your name eventually. Forget this pain eventually. When I wake up, I'll still be stuck in this place. Forget your name eventually. Forget this pain eventually. I'm sipping on this bourbon, sitting by the staircase. Thinking about the good days before I knew your name. I got this cloud on me, can't seem to brush it off, can't seem to let it go. I'm waiting patiently for you to let me know how you really feel. When I wake up, I'll still be stuck in this place. Forget your name eventually. Forget this pain eventually. Oh, when I wake up, I'll still be stuck in this place. Forget your name eventually. Forget this pain eventually. You've just heard that lovely soulful track from Maisha, which was eventually. And now we will go to a replay uh, from Jamad Hersey from the Women of Color Network at the Women's Rights at Work Conference at the end of 2022, where they spoke about the formation of their network and the need to address discrimination in Victorian public sector workplaces. And this is from Stick Together. Now we hear part of a talk given by Jamad Hersey from the Women of Colours Network and a CPSU member. It was from the Solidarity with Women of Colour panel. Ms Hersey gives a fascinating account of effective organising. I'm Jamad and I'm, I am from Somalia. I've lived here for 10 years, um, came here as an international student. So I work for the Victorian government. I, alongside with a lot of other women of color, found ourselves in workplaces where, um, when I say workplaces, I'm talking about the public sector. Um, it's also in the private sector, uh, where we were treated differently, uh, whether that was dealing with currents um, or racial micro microaggressions or outright discrimination. What that looks like for women of color is that you, it, it means dealing with that triple biases based on race, gender, religion, and all the other identities that, that comes with all pop people or, or walk people. 
We also found out that there was a lack of insight and obliviousness to the new senses of working with BIPOC people. And then we, what we also found was that eventually BIPOC people who were experiencing bullying, harassment, discrimination at work would have eventually either leave or if they decided to go through the informal, formal complaint systems, it came at the cost of their well-being or in the future towards their career progression. So organically, we found ourselves during lunch breaks, after work, I was listening to each other. Women coming together and sharing their bullying experiences by the boss or in the same workplace. And then organically built this safe space where frustrations, tears, stories were shared. And we also knew that we were like about 10 of us. So the work I'm about to share is also done by incredible co-founders, incredible women of color that are not here with me. So it's not my work um, alone. And so we, we developed this, we became essentially therapists. And then we're like, what are we gonna, and then we, so we decided to do something about it because we knew there were other women of color who didn't have the opportunity to come to us to share and let that out. So we're like, we need to do something about this. And, and we officially um, started this um, network called Victorian um, Public Sector Women of Color. Um, it's a staff-led collective. and It's run by and for self-identifying women of color. It was launched in 2019 and run by the by VPS volunteer staff. So volunteer, we're not paid. What I'm about to share is an incredible amount of work. It's incredible work, network, that we all do on top of our nine to five. Organically grew <laughs> members, women of color members and allies. And so we've got about nearly 900 members. Um, yeah, since 2019. The aim of the network is to strive to create a safe and inclusive space that allows women of color to better contribute and to f inform the development of programs, policies that better meet the needs of black, uh, women of color and also all of DPS staff um, to advocate and improve the DNI practices that exist across VPS and then also we targeted um, and it's championed and targeted people who are in leadership so that they could carry that voice. Uh, we've been able to gain visibility internally and externally um, across VPS. We've been able to develop a real safe space for women of color. Um, so there are two different safe spaces. There's one that is only for women of color where they can express their grievances share tears and then there's a space that is shared with allies and for us that was really important to, to to separate because there is the potential or the risk of an individual woman unintentionally taking space we want to make sure that women of color members feel comfortable before they can you know it took me a long time to sit here and talk to people um so we we need to we we recognize that we need to we needed to do that um with the impact is that we've been able to create local women of color network across departments so your department of water environment delp uh, department of education um victoria police it was the most recent one it's been the hardest one but it's it's there uh, department of justice and they all sit under the the vps wide women of color network we support them and we've supported them because we also recognize that each department women of color experience their own and that our 
experience wasn't the same as this. So we needed to harness that difference, but also support. We have champions of the network. It was a very strategic move. Um, about seven to eight champions um, of the network and their role is to help us transform and embed mechanism for all sorts of things impacting women of color. Um, some of these champions are really in high positions. So like Gender Equality Commissioner, she's one of um, our champions. We meet regularly. We have deputy secretaries across department who are champions. And we have, we've approached them. They've been a support, supportive of our work because um, they were, they've recognized the need and they, some of them are women of color. Um, we we do provide lead, leadership development and mentoring programs. A lot of networking, a lot of networking events for both allies and members. But we, the biggest work actually what we have done was that the uh, DNI report, diversity and inclusion report. It was the first of ever its kind. It didn't exist. And this one was one that dealt into the experiences of women of color. The survey asked questions around the questions that led to collecting the experiences of women of color. The, what we found out when we were setting up the network was that we had a lot of anecdotal stories. Stories that were anecdotal. That was true to us. To us. We knew it. Um, you gave an example of how that idiot who would change the meeting. Mm -hmm. it, that happened, it happened to me. I had a, a boss that were two of them that changed meeting times or would send me a meeting times five, before, five minutes before it happened and then would say, oh, she's not here. Mm -hmm. And then or one of my colleagues would look out for me. I was in a role where eight women left, no, seven women left and one man, um, one man of color and then the seven women of um, both white women and women of color, um, two of them, left and no one, and they left because this, this guy bullied them this, and, and no one did anything about it. And then I also walked in and then second week, I was like, what is happening? Was being left out, um, was being told things like, um, you didn't do your work if, when he sent me one case, there were so many cases, but I do remember one time that he sent me an, 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 a task, something to do, um, 10 minutes before it was supposed to be done, and then within that 10 minutes we were walking into a meeting with a chairperson, and then I was supposed to talk about it. And then he would always throw me under the bus and be like, oh, Jamal, I sent you that email, and then, this was second week. And then obviously I'm trying to be polite and also Somalis and Africans, we like to always, it was an older man, so like this thing about, you know, age and respect, and I do respect and it should be, but I had that and I was like, okay, don't say anything. And I'll pull him to the side after the meeting and be like, you sent me this meeting, this thing 10 minutes ago. There's no way I could have done this submission paper or like a, <laughs> a whole page. And then he'd be like, oh, oh I'm, I'm sure I sent you yesterday. He didn't. And then eventually I would like, I, call, I started calling him out in the meeting. I was like, no, you actually sent me 10 minutes ago. And if you wanted me to do something about it, I would prefer you to give it to me a week before, minimum three days. And then, and then everyone would be like, I, was, I became the angry black woman. And I was, like, I was like, I don't care anymore because first of all, you don't feed me or you pay my salary, but I'm like, you, I don't care. I'm like, I would rather choose me than be put through these horrendous feelings of like, feeling inept, feeling inadequate, feeling like, because yeah. we women, we always question yeah. ourselves. Yes. So I would go into, into rooms and we'd be like, I've forgotten how to write. <laughs> <laughs>
this report, this one kind, one one of a kind report, eventually put evidence-based evidence to all the anecdotal stories. So now the people that we were talking to in leadership, depsex, and all the directors can no longer say, or oh, is a he say, she say. But like we ran, we ran two actually report uh, uh, surveys. One was to do with recruitment retention and the and the the role that women of color were in. And classically, like it was very similar to also all women, they were always overqualified for the role they were in. Um, it was a fixed term, it was a precarious job, but also what it was all the women of color were leaving within six months, one year, because the workplace was very unsafe, culturally unsafe. And so we found evidence that all the stories that are being told are actually now you could hold accountable, you could hold leaders accountable. So we put five recommendations. One of them was the whole of government um, cultural diversity strategy, strategy and action plan. Um, mandatory training and frameworks to improve cultural safety, intersectional data collection, because the, the data collection that we do in public sector or even in the private is quite, it's, it's quite poor. Um, the good thing was also the impact that we had was the, the Victorian government's response to the inquiry into um, the economic e equity for Victorian women picked it up, some of the recommendations that we did. I remember one of the recommendations was addressing challenges faced by women of color working in the public sector and developing strategies to address racism and discrimination in the public sector. CPSU did also the, the, the report, the women of color report, and also reiterated some of our work and some of our recommendations, as well as the, um, the Victorian Trades Hall Council submission on anti-racism. Um, they, they reiterated our report, our recommendations, and basically said, can you please pay them for the work that they're doing because they're doing you a favor, which was good. Um, we do a lot of work with uh, CPSU. I remember when we started the network, I'm a member of the CPSU, and then there are a lot, a lot of other allies and women of color who are members of CPSU, and that's how CPSU came to, to be about, and we approached them. They actually, we both approached each other, and they were, in recognizing that this was work that needed to be done, it was a gap, and then they were quite supportive and are still really supportive of the work that we do. So how did we get? How did we build solidarity, community, and network? Or what does that look like? Mm -hmm. There is a safety in numbers. We have found incredible white women who recognize that they needed to be worked on in this space. Were genuine and had the same visions and were genuine about um, the work that we were doing and wanted to come and support. Um, there's also strength in vulnerability, in the sense of acknowledging that as white women, white people, you are part of a system that perpetuates the status quo for women of color. Mm -hmm. and I know that some, a lot of the times it's not intentional. The systems and structures that are in Australia are not built for people of color or BIPOC people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I experience any discrimination or racism, like I go, of course I am. Like look at the foundation of the country, like of course. There were a lot of people who were white women um, because they were allies um, who were willing to go through active reflection, self-assessment, being aware of their privilege. You've just heard from Jamad Hersey from the Women of Colour Network at the Women's Rights Conference at the end of 2022. 
where they spoke about the formation of their network and the need to address discrimination in the Victorian public sector workplaces, which I think sometimes will uh, breed <laughs> a particular kind of environment that definitely needs to be addressed and different varying levels of privilege as well. So you can catch more um, industrial, social and workplace topics from 3CR's Stick Together, which plays on Wednesday, 8.30 to 9am. And now we will be going to a very fun track called Big Titties by Janaba. Janaba? Janaba. I think we'll go with Janaba. Janaba, yep. And that was Big Titties by Janava. What an incredible song. I love it. Big Titties in the City. Um, shout out to all the big titties in the city today. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. 
speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to go to another track now. This one is P stands for Player by Pania. And that was P Stands for Playa by Pania. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? 
Kamanacha on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. I think we might head to, uh, dare I say it, a third track in a row. This one is Smile by Saber featuring Jam.
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.41 in the morning and you just heard Smile by Saba featuring Jam. And now we're going to be joined by Jathan Zadowski, who's a senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, who's going to be speaking with us about generative AI platforms, including sorry, including the much-hyped DAL-E and ChatGPT to unpack what they do, how they work, and to contextualize their development within the political economy of the modern tech industry. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Priya. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm really, uh, I've of course, really appreciated your analysis of this thus far, so I'm excited to have a chat about it on air. Um, maybe we can start off with a bit of a primer on generative AI. So I know our listeners will probably have heard of systems like Dolly and ChatGPT, both of which have been developed by the company OpenAI. But what are we talking about in general when we use the term generative AI? Um, can you tell us how these systems are trained and how they work? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as I go about and do that, I think it's really important to realize that this term generative AI is pretty new. Uh, and Dolly and ChatGPT just kind of seemingly came out of nowhere last November or so. So we're, it, it's interesting that we're all already um, talking about this and trying to understand a like huge tech hype, huge trend that is just a few months old. <laughs> and so with all that said, I think it really speaks to the power of these systems that creating a lot of uh, that hype and a lot of attention. Um, but to, to bring it back a little bit, what Dolly and ChatGPT is, is they're essentially you know, AI systems, generative AI, is taking in a bunch of information, a bunch of data. So Dolly does images, ChatGPT does text, and these systems just consume uh, a, a huge amount, essentially an internet source uh, amount of data about images, paintings, art, or in terms of ChatGPT, anything, any text that's ever been posted on the internet. And it consumes all that, and then it uses it to create output based on prompts that people give it. So, you know, you can tell Dolly to give you a, a, a painting in the style of Rembrandt, of a robot, uh, and, and it will do something like that. Or you can tell ChatGPT to uh, write you a song about Australia in the style of uh, the Beatles, and it will do that, right? Um, and, and so that's one thing that makes these these systems so interesting is the ability to directly interact with them and directly have outputs, which is not what we're used to when it comes to AI systems. And so that's, that's really the generative point, is they are technologies, they're, they're systems that consume a lot of data and then generate outputs based on somebody asking them to do a specific thing. Yeah, and I think... Um I'm gonna I'm gonna plug the excellent uh, Ted Chang essay um, on ChatGPT here as well because I think there's a, a really um, useful analogy there in terms of uh, 
comparing this to kind of lossy compression uh, in in audio terms, where uh, this generative AI, these these tools are not necessarily uh, producing something that is like a, a, a novel creative output, but more kind of uh, cramming together or summarizing a whole lot of information um, in a way that, yeah, has you know, interesting implications for the way that we engage with these kinds of tools and um, and, and their potential to actually um, make change and create new things. Um, but yeah, you did mention that engagement with these generative AI tools um, seems to be encouraged with a ho- by a whole lot of hype, um, and they are quite new. Um, but this has also been uh, accompanied by a growing public discourse, which I would say is probably part of the same hype machine around the potential for these tools to affect labor conditions across a range of industries by, quote, replacing workers. So could you speak to the role of marketing and um, I- in this and kind of the accuracy of the hype and how it aligns with the capital flows then that are associated with these tools? Yeah, absolutely. Like, we can't understand these technologies without understanding them in the context of venture capital investment and capital flows. And the fact that right now there's a lot of what in the VC world is called dry powder, so capital that's waiting to be moved into something. Uh, and and there's, there's a reason why generative AI has come out of nowhere as well and been accompanied by a lot of hype about all of the things it's going to do, all of the disruptions it's going to cause, all of the wonders it's going to bring to our lives. Uh, the, you know, it, it happened to come um, right at the, the, the tail end of the crypto crash and the like evaporation of Web3, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that cryptocurrencies, blockchains, Web3, you know, the next phase of the internet or whatever that we heard about so much over the last two years, suddenly that all crashed, it collapsed, it evaporated. And there were a lot of people or a lot of venture capitalists and a lot of technology companies with a whole lot of money waiting, ready to invest it into the metaverse or in the cryptocurrency. And now that opportunity is not there. And so generative AI has kind of taken the place as the next new hype machine um, that's attracting all of this uh, investment. And there's a good reason for it as well, because, I mean, it's, if any of your listeners have played around with Dolly or ChatGPT, it is quite wondrous. And uh, it, it's very interesting because it's, some, it's unlike anything we're ever used to interacting with in terms of something that seems to be intelligent, something mm-hmm. that seems to give you original, novel, intelligent responses to a direct query or question, or you can have conversations with ChatGPT. But importantly, uh, and this is, I, I, I'll, I can't remember where I saw the tweet, just that it's lost on my timeline, but I saw somebody very early on describe ChatGPT not as um, having a genius in your pocket, but more like having 10 dumb guys in your pocket, right? Like, because there's nothing original that mm-hmm. ChatGPT is actually doing. There's nothing novel or smart uh, in the in the sense of you know intelligent um, that it's doing. What it's doing is what can be described as mimicking, mm-hmm. or in a more technical term, what we might call probabilistic pastiche. Uh, in other words, it's mimicking or it's it's uh, 
uh, it's mimicking the style of other things, and it's doing so in a probabilistic way. It doesn't actually know what it's doing. It doesn't have a theory of mind. It doesn't have cognizance. It doesn't have conscience. What it does is it's an extremely advanced version of autocorrect, mm-hmm. where every single word that it produces or every pixel of an image it produces is just a probabilistic, this seems to be what comes next in this uh, series of creating an output. So it doesn't understand the whole thing it's creating. It doesn't even understand what it's creating. And it's not creating anything new in the sense that it's totally original. It's a kind of probabilistic mashup of stuff that already exists in the world. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great um, like the mashup, I think, is a great kind of description of it as well, because it kind of also looks at these correlations and brings things together, uh, which then allows, you know, for really weird products, um, for example, out of Dolly, which are which are novel and are really interesting to engage with. But um, I know that a lot of your work also focuses really on um, you know, what happens in the back end of these things and what are the material um, relations that make these things possible? And I know that you've drawn attention to the fact that uh, the most concerning labor issue is not not thinking about things like, you know, how will this replace copywriters or creative uh, people in the creative industries, but rather looking at the realm of data labor for these AI systems. So could you explain what you mean by this? Yeah, for sure. These AI systems don't come out of nowhere either. They require an immense amount of labor, not just in creating the technology, you know, coding the system, but more so and importantly, uh, creating and cleaning the data required to train these systems. And there's, there's a, a massive global industry, a, a tens of billions of dollar uh, global industry that is focused on exactly uh, providing the labor pool to create and clean data that can then be fed into training AI systems exactly like uh, ChatGPT or DALI or now any number of these other models and AI systems that are being created. And this labor is uh, often very invisible. Um, It goes... Uh, it, it does not go acknowledged by, you know, consumers don't even really know about it, and the companies that use it don't acknowledge it. Because if you uh, pull the curtain back behind the, the Wizard of Oz and see that it's actually just a bunch of, you know, workers, and in the case of ChatGPT, they were contracting with a company uh, in Kenya that was paying workers $2 an hour to do this kind of uh, data training. And importantly, this is not just sitting around and doing, like, you know, kind of data entry work. In the case of ChatGPT, they were training a system to create the, the guardrails for the uh, uh, ChatGPT to prevent, in other words, uh, the, the AI from skewing uh, violent, racist, homophobic, sexist, uh, any other kind of awful kind of outputs because it's trained on the Internet, which mm-hmm. means it's trained on an entire large corpus of racist, violent, sexist, et cetera, uh, data. And so you've got people who are, you know, doing the really hard manual work of filtering out that data and training the AI how to not not use that kind of data in its out, uh, output, but use other kinds of data. Um, and so this is a really necessary labor industry for the creation of these 
technologies that, you know, seem magical, but largely because all of the underpaid uh, labor that goes into them is, is invisible. Yeah, I mean, I think that really, um, really echoes maybe not the the like a bunch of dumb guys uh, comment, but really just it is just like there's a bunch of guys actually at at the at the back end that are making it possible for you um, to engage with this in a particular way that is not you know violent and harmful. Um, I think uh, maybe potentially I don't know I could be wrong here, but a useful kind of analog to that kind of labor model is thinking about content moderation. Um, I'm thinking about this like on social media, where it's like, yeah, automation might be a feature of that content moderation, but a lot of it is just people having to uh, engage with really horrible parts of the internet, horrible things that people try and upload, um, and make sure that those don't hit people's feeds. Yeah, no, there's an exact, it's the same industry. Um, So you're right to draw that analogy because it is the same exact industry and it's the same exact kind of job um, that, you know, and there's a lot of research uh, and and data showing that, or evidence showing that people working in content moderation, as well as working and training these AI systems are quite traumatized Mm. by the work they do because they are having to engage with the the darkest parts of the internet to, you know, protect consumers from not ever experiencing that. So, you know, truly awful things like, you know, uh, seeing, you know, uh, beheading, child pornography, you know, these kinds of things um, on that are posted on social media or that just exist on the internet, um, and then filtering that out, cleaning it from uh, the the data that then goes into the consumer facing application. Yeah. Um, I thought that we could maybe briefly pivot um, from this discussion about how, you know, how the sausage is made to the potential impact of these large language models like ChatGPT in the academic arena, because I think they raise some interesting questions about some of the already like fairly fraught notions of academic integrity and then the grinding demands of like a publish or perish model of research labor. So um, I know this is a, a big can of worms to open up, but I know that we're both also situated within academia. So I was wondering if you could maybe comment on whether or how you think large language model AI systems might influence approaches to research and teaching, um, considering what we're seeing at like early stages. Yeah, and I think that's important is that it is still very much early stages. It's a good question, and there's absolutely analogies we should be drawing here as well. You know, whether it's you know similar conversations people were having, uh, as, you know, when calculators uh, became a thing. Right now, no one's going to know mathematics because everyone has a calculator. Um, or similarly, when when I was in college, it was all about Wikipedia, mm-hmm. right? Like now, no, you know, people aren't students aren't going to write their own essays because they have Wikipedia to uh, copy from. Like all that to say is that these are serious issues that require you know real serious consideration, but they're also not totally new in form either. Um, the fact that you know there there is real good concern that you know our our both students and academics alike going to, you know, just go on to ChatGPT and say, write me a 1,200-word essay uh, about the history of Australia, and then you turn that into your class, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and that, that's a possibility. Um, and, however, I think for me, 
you know, some universities are going to the extent of, of, of you know, making formal rules in terms of banning the use of generative AI um, in assignments unless it's otherwise part of the assignment. Um, and, you know, for me, I think it, it, it's early days, and I think there's going to be a lot of kind of missteps in terms of figuring out how and to what extent we can use these technologies. And I, I think a lot of the, the worry does actually come down to as well the fact that people don't really have a clear sense of the limitations mm-hmm. of these technologies um, and, and their ability to do, uh, to do actually original, interesting, novel um, work visually or textually. Uh, and, and, you know, I think once we get more uh, interaction with these things that, again, are really, really quite new, and I think open, I saw a stat that OpenAI within, you know, has already reached 100 million active users. It's become the, the fastest growing consumer application in the history of the world. Wow. Uh, and, and, but what that tells me is that there's a lot of people experimenting with it, a lot of people interacting with it. But it's also still really new, and I think people will very quickly start discovering the real limitations of these things. And also, I think we will honestly just get used to uh, eating AI-generated text mm-hmm. in the way that right now it seems human-like because we've never encountered anything like it. But give it a couple years of like this stuff being much more common in our everyday life in terms of reading news articles that have been generated by AI or reading student essays that have been generated by AI. And I think we'll be surprised at how quickly we start to pick up on the fact that, oh, this is an AI-generated thing. And then, of course, you know, it opens up the question of an arms race of, you know, constantly improving technologies that try to get that more and more human-like or surpass human capabilities. But we're, we're not at that point right now. Yeah, totally. I think that's a a really important thing to bring it back to when we're having these discussions is, you know, not to jump the gun and be like, oh, no, this is like the next phase of human evolution. But really to look at this in the context that it developed from, which is really like a hype cycle of the tech industry, um, you know, pushing uh, investment in particular areas after, you know, the crypto crash and, um, you know, the the fizzle out of Web3 and really just, you know, taking it as it comes and, and seeing what happens next. So, Jathan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much, Priya. Always a joy. All right. And that was uh, Jathan Sadowski, Senior Research Fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, who spoke with us about generative AI platforms, including the much-hyped DALI and ChatGPT, and unpacked what they do, how they work, and contextualize some of their development within the political economy of the modern tech industry. And alongside Jathan's academic research, he also co-hosts This Machine Kills, which is a podcast about technology and political economy. And you can find that where all good podcasts are hosted. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. All right. North Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists.
The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Next up, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Jane Burke, who is Associate Professor in Pharmacology at Monash University, where she leads the Respiratory Pharmacology Group. She has a long-standing interest in the regulation of smooth muscle function in the lung and cardiovascular system and has been leading a research program on silicosis at Monash Biomedicine Discovery Institute since the first cases in stonemasons working with engineered stone were reported in Australia. Today, Jane joins us to discuss rising concerns about silicosis in Australia and the precautions we should be taking at an individual and regulatory scale. Good morning, Jane. How are you? Um, well, Lila, thanks. Good Thank- morning, everybody. <laughs> thanks for joining us. So I thought we could start with a bit of background. Could you provide a brief overview of your work at the Burke Laboratory at Monash? Of course I can. Yes, so our lab uh, is in the pharmacology department, which essentially means we look at uh, mechanisms of disease and how drugs work. My lab is particularly interested in lung diseases. And uh, so we do work in everything from cells to uh, disease models, trying to understand these diseases and, and hopefully find new treatments, particularly for diseases like silicosis, where we don't have any uh, current effective treatments. It sounds like a huge project that you're doing um, out there. So I thought next we could go to a bit of background about silicosis itself, which is what we're specifically going to be talking about today. So what exactly is silicosis? How does it develop and what effects can it have on those living with the disease? So we know that silicosis is an occupational lung disease. It's caused by breathing in very fine uh, dust that's generated during the cutting of materials that contain silica. So silica's in so many materials, but our main concern in terms of workers is that the engineered stone that's used for bench tops um, has a really, really high content of silica, like 95% silica. This is much higher than other things like marble, which might only be 5%. So natural stone doesn't really have as high amounts. The issue is that um, when workers are cutting this stone or even working with something like sandstone, doing tunnelling or working in quarries, they generate this fine dust that can travel deep into the lungs. So the particles are about one hundredth the size of a grain of sand. And so normally our body's pretty good at getting rid of dust. If we breathe things in, we might sneeze. 
we might it might get trapped in our nose, we might be able to blow it out, or we might even be able to cough it out of our lungs. Mm. But these particles are so small, they're going really deep into the lungs, and that starts uh, an inflammatory process. And then uh, in the with higher doses and longer exposure, this can lead to scarring in the lungs. And that's why the people who have um, this disease, they feel breathless and they feel this sort of tightness in their chest. And then with more severe disease, the, the dust really accumulates in the lungs. And because the body can't get rid of it, as I said, we've got this scarring and stiffness of the lungs and people feel tired because the gas exchange that normally happens in the lung can't happen. So they can't get enough air um, into their lungs as well. So it's a really serious disease. It's um, very sad that it's incurable, but essentially it is preventable. But the people who have it, they suffer that tiredness, the breathlessness, and it actually increases your risk of developing lung cancer and some other mm-hmm. autoimmune type diseases. So, you know, you, we really want to catch the disease as early as possible to stop people getting prolonged exposure and worse symptoms. Yeah, so this is a preventable disease. I think that's one of the reasons that um, on Monday, the Australian Workers' Union, the CFMEU and the Australian Council of Trade Unions launched a campaign demanding increased regulation to halt the rise of silicosis-related lung disease amongst industry workers. Could you speak a bit more to what specific context has renewed this call? Absolutely. So um, I was at the press conference on Monday morning with the union workers, with a couple of um, people who unfortunately have developed silicosis, the consequence of exposure in their workplace. And I was representing the health side of things. So um, as a researcher, I'm part of a group called the Thoracic Society, which really represents all the lung doctors, health workers and researchers. And together, we're all really, really concerned about the increasing numbers of cases that have emerged of this disease over the last few years. And the reason the numbers have gone up is really, it's really only over the last 20 years that we've started using this uh, stone in our kitchen, bench tops, etc. Mm. It takes a little while for that disease to emerge, but it appears that the combination of the increased use of that stone and the unregulated sort of workplaces where workers are being exposed to the dust because they're not taking the right precautions or their um, employers are not taking the right precautions means that we've got this increased number of workers. And the stonemasons are actually only about 1% of the workers who work with silica. We've got over Mm -hmm. 600,000 workers in Australia who are potentially exposed to silica in the workplace. And of those, it's been predicted that 100,000 are going to develop this disease. So the modelling of the disease um, and the workplace screening has revealed in this um, worst-case scenario in the stonemasons, up to one in four of those workers have either got early signs, have got early signs of silicosis or even really severe disease. So you can see why it's now absolutely urgent that we do something to protect those workers, starting Mm. by banning this high-content silica stone that's being used in the bench tops. Yeah. But also working in those under other industries as well. Yeah, it's a really worrying trend and definitely something that's been on my mind in a bit of a different context, but I do have a history of working as a ceramicist and oh. there's pretty much no regulations in I guess the 
arts-based industry that's not on a commercial level. So mm. that was something that really concerned me as someone who was employed and wasn't I wasn't making the management decisions that meant I could protect myself. Um, that's, so that's very sad to hear. I know that um, last year there was a reported case of a. Mm-hmm. Um, a school teacher who'd been working in ceramics that had been diagnosed with silicosis. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So, so really, protection of workers is absolutely key to stop anybody else getting what is essentially a preventable disease. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely all of our responsibility to enforce these standards. So, mm. just pivoting a bit, um, I understand that lung disease can be linked to an aging population. This means that they will inevitably increase in coming years and are already on the rise in the case of silicosis. Could you speak more in depth to any significant trends or changes you've noticed over the duration of your research? Well, my research covers a range of diseases beyond occupational lung diseases Mm -hmm. like silicosis. Clearly, with an ageing population, we've got the potential for people to develop diseases that wouldn't have developed if our life expectancy hadn't increased because of other health measures that have improved people. You know, people live longer, Mm -hmm. so they have chances for getting things over a longer period of time. Clearly, um, something like uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is uh, emphysema that was associated, is highly associated with smoking. Mm -hmm. Um, As people get older, they reach this sort of critical phase in their lung function where you know their lung, everybody's lung function goes down with age, but as we get um, older and we've got a population of people, for example, that smoked a lot in their youth, maybe they've even stopped smoking. But this means that that, that disease in particular, we're seeing an increased amount of that disease. So it was predicted to be the third leading killer um, until COVID came along, but um, that's another disease that. Uh, impacted by the ageing population. Mm. In terms of the silicosis, you know, um, really it's affecting young workers, which is the great tragedy because the onset of this disease is within five to ten years of exposure with this high uh, silica dust. And I think um, we've really got to be conscious of the fact that, you know, not protecting workers at any age is bad, but, you know, the prospect of these Mostly young men in their 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, But as I've mentioned, this woman who was a ceramicist, there was a woman who was working in a quarry and exposed to dust in her workplace. These are people that are way too young to be getting um, a lung disease that's going to really compromise their quality of life. Um, We know that with that worse lung function, you know, the normal activities that we take for granted, walking upstairs, you know, that sort of thing, if you can't, breathe you can't do those normal things that we all really take for granted yeah it definitely presents some really um impactful health um challenges i guess to the people suffering so what are some practical ways workers can care for their lungs and what kind of checkups should folks have if they are working in a high-risk industry yeah that's a, a really important aspect of thinking about Everybody should be thinking about their lung health. We should all only be breathing in things. We should all only be breathing in clean air, essentially. So if, um, you know, we know that a lot of tradies smoke, for example, that's going to compromise their lung function as well. So that in combination with exposure is a bad bad thing. Um, Workers should also be 
uh, making sure they have vaccinations so they don't get other lung infections. This is the sort of stuff we would tell elderly people, but we're really mm. suggesting that people that are in these high-risk industries really need to be conscious of their lung health. Many workplaces offer screening, regular screening, um, and this might involve doing a test to measure how well your lungs are working, how much oxygen is getting in your lungs, and if somebody is suspected of having had high exposure to silica, they may require x-rays or ideally um, even a CT scan, which is a much more sensitive way of detecting this lung damage. Yeah. Um, so, it, and, and the other thing I'd say is that if, if somebody knows that they've been exposed to silica or they're worried about their lung health in general, they need to be telling their doctor about their occupational history. So it's possible for a, a doctor regular GP, not to ask a worker what they do and attribute their breathlessness to something like asthma or tell them to stop smoking. So it's really important that these extra tests are done when somebody has been exposed to this dust. Yeah, so testing is really important, I guess, for catching it early and um, mm -hmm. it can be preventable. Serious lung disease can be preventable if silicosis is caught at an early stage. And yes, finally... Absolutely to wrap up today and maybe to offer a bit of, um, I guess, positive sentiment to those out there who could be living with the disease, what treatments are currently available and what could soon be available for people living with silicosis? Yes, yeah, so as we've said before, at the moment we really do not have a cure. So that early detection, so that somebody stops having any further exposure to the dust, which could cause further damage, is very, very, very important. In terms of treatment, um, some of the inflammation can be controlled with steroids that are used for a number of inflammatory conditions, including other lung diseases. There are some drugs that are used for other lung diseases where there's that scarring that have been shown to slow progression mm -hmm. of disease. And at the moment, they're just in clinical trials for silicosis, and those trials are still relatively small. There's a study in Spain. But there is a study in Australia where they're recruiting patients for that. But again, it's likely that the first trial will only um, be in the sort of hundreds of patients and it will take a while before those results come out to work out whether those drugs are effective. Um, there's been a radical treatment developing in Queensland that is maybe suitable for some patients that have had high-dose exposure and this is actually washing out the lungs to try and remove some of that dust. And that's quite a radical procedure, mm. but it does appear to have had some benefit. Yeah. Um, but really the prospects for patients with severe disease, maybe they need some oxygen support. And then in the um, when disease progresses and if there is a lung available, there is the possibility of a lung transplant, but obviously that's a last resort. Yeah. So the message really is avoid exposure. Be careful, check your health and make sure that you're um, telling your GP about your workplace exposure so that those additional tests that are likely to detect the disease earlier um, are, are available to you. Jane, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That was a really important note to finish on and thanks for sharing this information with our audience. Um, we'll thank hopefully chat, chat again <laughs> with okay. better news okay. about future thank treatments. Hopefully when some of my own research reveals perhaps a novel treatment for this disease. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bella. Bye now.
We just heard from Dr. Jane Burke, who is an Associate Professor in Pharmacology at Monash University. She has been leading a research program on silicosis at Monash Biomedicine Discovery Institute since the first cases of silicosis in stonemasons working with engineered stone presented in Australia. Today, Jane spoke to us about rising concerns about silicosis and the precautions we should be taking to protect ourselves on an individual and regulatory scale. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind to the beat of clapstick and the dancing. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by James Clark, the executive director of Digital Rights Watch, to speak with us about the use of in Australia of landlord technology such as Snug, which has attracted scrutiny after revelations about its dubious method of scoring of rental applications in a Guardian exclusive late last year. And most recently, Snug has been engaged by Homes Victoria to develop a platform to allocate affordable housing in the state via random ballot, which has raised additional concerns about the nature and use of this technology. James, good morning. Good morning. So I thought we can jump straight into it uh, by talking about some of the broad issues that are, are related to what you've previously described as landlord tech when it comes to renters' data privacy. So anyone who's recently applied for a rental in Australia will have come up against one of a number of tech platforms which operate to collect and store enormous amounts of personal information that's solicited by real estate agents despite having quite dubious privacy protection mechanisms. So what are some of the core concerns about the operation and normalization of landlord tech in Australia? Yeah, so we've got kind of two broad concerns here. The first one is just, like you mentioned, the data collection. Um, last year, we saw what can happen um, and just how harmful it is to collect so much data and when that data is um, not stored securely. Um, and we've seen, um, obviously, when the Office and Medibank breaches, just um, the scope of that. But there was also a Harcourt data breach um, that was kind of a lower... Um, less less public attention was on that, but you know this is something that we're really worried about. As anyone who who rents knows, um, the amount of information that you're handing over um, to real estate agents in these application processes is is really significant. You're handing over uh, bank statements, all of your identification, you know, all of your previous addresses, your work pay slips. You know, you, you've, there's so much information that's being handed over in a rental application uh, that then um, is just stored by these companies, mm. and we don't know for how long, um, often forever, right? Um, and so that's that's one area of concern. Um, as we you know, we continue to increase put tech into this space. Uh, the amount of information that gets collected is is really significant. Um, landlord tech like Snug introduces kind of another layer of issues for us. Is that this is starting to become really you know it's trying to bring an element of intelligence to this and an element of um, machine learning that. Um, it's also starting to draw on other sources. So Snug 
um, builds your snug score, which is kind of a match score for, you know, a tenant in a house, which is just kind of a nonsense idea anyway. But mm-hmm. this, this idea that um, they're starting to draw on, like, your LinkedIn profile, your Facebook profile, your Twitter profile. They even can look at, like, Airbnb reviews of you and things like that. They start to, like, scrape the internet and search for other sources of information on you and start to collate that into that score, um, which obviously, you know, is highly invasive to, to kind of do that. But it's also starting to build up, I guess, like in, a, in an environment where a tenant has very little power and a landlord has a lot of power. And it just really builds this asymmetry of power that like who has access to tools like this? Who can build this kind of profiling, like this kind of profiling, this kind of information? Um, and it's it's always rich people. It's always the people who already have a lot of power in our society who have that power to do that. And so, you know, capital is able to wield this power against us. And this is something that, you know, we're, we're deeply concerned about. That this, this, this kind of our privacy is one of these ways that we can fight back against that kind of abuse. Yeah, of course. And I mean, like this scoring process has really raised so many red flags in that Guardian exclusive. There was a lot of, um, you know, exposure bringing to light of uh, the way that this uh, is supposedly meant to help agents find the best fit for a rental property. But really, um, it allows for all kinds of discriminatory screening practices uh, that wouldn't otherwise necessarily be facilitated. Um, So I'm wondering how digital rights infrastructure is actually keeping pace with privacy concerns that are raised by landlord tech and the extent of user data accessible by Snug, which, as you've mentioned, uh, potentially includes social media as one of many sources to construct these digital profiles of renters. Um, Because I know that some personal attributes of renters are technically protected from being included in traditional renting screening pro- rental screening processes. But how does this get complicated by the indirect nature of this data collection and aggregation? I guess one of the, the main challenges that you're touching on here is just the, the lack of oversight. Um, you know, it's like, like you say, there are these uh, laws in place here about protected attributes being used to discriminate in rental applications. But when you put it into a black box like Snug, and often we find ourselves looking at like these sorts of like um, automated decision-making processes, which are um, often more discriminatory or at least just as discriminatory as any other process um, that exists. And but it's able to outsource that to the computer, I guess. Like they, they naturalize and normalize the discriminatory outcomes because they're like, well, the computer made that decision and the computer's impartial. And the computer's not impartial. Of course it's not because Mm -hmm. it's been programmed by normally by biased data and also normally by biased people. (laughs) Um, And so one of the problems we have here is just this lack of oversight. And this is actually one of these things when we're looking at like automated decision-making like this, that we, one of the principles that at least that I have in this is that you know, is it really better than a computer? Is it than a person? Does it actually improve the system? And normally, no. And if it doesn't, like, it's not better um, because you can't have oversight of of an of an algorithm. I guess in the same way that you can a person. So we look at a couple of things here. One is privacy reform is currently on um, kind of on the move through government. As there was a report released last week by the Attorney General's Department, mm. there's a lot of recommendations in that privacy reform that would genuinely help here. Um, and, and limit the amount of data that can be collected and limit the purposes that that data can be used for. Um, that's one thing. Obviously, then enforcement is another thing, and we need to make sure that there's, um, there's real proper enforcement in this space. Um, but we've also got to look at, like, just the, um, I guess, the, the digital, sorry, not the digital, like the political economy of this and, like, who, who is wielding power. And, and I think, like, private companies like Snug producing 
these kinds of platforms that, you know, like the clients for Snug are not renters. They're not tenants. Mm-hmm. The, you know, Snug's clients are real estate agents and landlords, so they are making tech that serves the interests of real estate agents and landlords. Um, and they always will build tech. And so one of the problems here is obviously we've got to look broadly at just the housing system and how exploitative it is. Um, you know, no technical solution is going to solve this. This is something that, that needs to be, that, that power imbalance between renters and landlords sorry, is something that needs to be addressed uh, more broadly because as long as, that, as long as they have the power to make you homeless, they're going to be allowed to do almost anything they want. Yeah, I think that is such a good point because, um, you know, these things really are being described, you know, by spokespeople of the company and now more recently by, by Homes Victoria, which we'll get into in a minute, as sort of these neutral tools. But of course, they come with so much um you know, baggage and power relations that are built into the the way that they um, conduct their business and allocation of these scores and so forth. So most recently, Snug has been engaged by Homes Victoria to develop a purpose-built platform to allocate affordable rental housing by a random ballot. And this has obviously raised some brand new concerns. Um, How does Homes Victoria's rationale for engaging Snug line up with their clearly murky data privacy practices and potential for discrimination? And what additional concerns does this raise, both in terms of digital rights and uh, equitable housing access in particular? Yeah, look, this one, this one's mystifying in so many ways, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the idea, obviously, the idea of a, of a ballot for housing is in itself, um, you know, fairly fairly ludicrous. But um, if you're going to be doing a, a ballot and it's going to be a genuinely random ballot, um, you know, a company like Snug um, just doesn't seem like a, a right fit. Like, you know, running a a, a ran, you know, a random. Um, lottery doesn't require the like the kind of technology that snug has built so that does raise some questions and the lack of kind of transparency here um is, is really big like i was digging through the the tenders victoria website because obviously if you're um if the if the government is bringing on a, a private contractor to do some work it's normally meant to be some public tender process mm-hmm. and obviously those processes are normally um you know kind of nonsense anyway mm-hmm. but there's meant to be at least some kind of uh, process there that, that the public can look at, and there there isn't one that I could find. Um, and there's um, so we don't really know how much they're paying Snug. We don't know what the terms of that contract are. Um, but it certainly does seem like you know Snug is about to get access to an awful lot of information about um, you know people in housing distress mm. who are who are looking for homes. Um, and I think you know like that's, tr- that's troubling to me that a company that is you know as clearly as uh, I guess dubious in their data practices and um, and as invasive as Snug is, um, that they're kind of getting access, you know, from gov- you know, government data onto people who are looking for uh, affordable housing is, um, yeah, I think that's just really troubling. Yeah, I mean, like, and especially given given you know the public reporting that we've seen since November of last year about Snug's practices, uh, the idea that there is no clearly documented open tendering for this. Um, is is very concerning because it's like you know what what are the what are the sort of logics that the government has deemed acceptable within Snug's practices so far to then develop a purpose built platform to engage in this kind of screening and then on the other hand it does raise questions about the whole purpose of the internal scoring system of the Victorian Housing Register um, you know why why um, 
you know, look at things like how long someone's been on the list or their level of vulnerability and need uh, when this thing is going to allocate things by random ballot as well. So it seems pretty fundamentally, um, I don't know, unequal. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, if I was going to build, you know, genuinely, if you're going to wanted to build a lottery machine, like, I've, you know, the technical people I've spoken to are like, that's a, you know, that's, not, that's a project for an afternoon of one person. Like, mm-hmm. you know, put in a bunch of inputs and then randomly select a defined number of those inputs. Like, that's not a difficult job. Like, why do we need to be paying, you know, God knows how much money snug to build this kind of platform? This is something that a public servant could have been able to do if they really had to run a lottery, which, again really feels like the worst way to allocate housing. (laughs) Totally. And I mean, it also, um, you know, ties into so many concerns that are already well established about um, the power uh, disparity between people who are, you know, experiencing extreme socioeconomic deprivation and vulnerability uh, in terms of their ability to protect their data and the amount of data that's solicited from, you know, things like Centrelink and uh, by by things like Centrelink. to then um, have this company access, uh, like able to access it is so concerning. So, look, James, thank you so much for taking us through some of these concerns. Um, I think it's a really important live issue to stay on top of. And we'll make sure to link to Digital Rights Watch's work as well so people can keep up to date with what you're doing. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Thank you. And that was James Clark, the executive director of Digital Rights Watch, who spoke with us about the use in Australia of landlord tech such as Snug, which has attracted scrutiny after revelations about its dubious method of scoring of rental applications in a Guardian exclusive late last year. And most recently, Snug has been engaged by Homes Victoria to develop a platform to allocate affordable housing in the state via random ballot, which is, of course, raised additional concerns about the nature and use of this technology. That's all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We'll catch you next week.